thank you, Tad. Uh, kids, you are dismissed to Gospel Project. If you're new with us, uh, just follow the sea of parents and kids, and uh, you'll end up where you need to. Somebody certainly can help you out. Uh, thank you so much for being here this morning, being attentive, uh, awake. That's pretty good. That's a good step forward. Um, my name is Brian Jerry. I am a pastoral resident here uh, and grateful to be filling that role and grateful for love and care and concern that the church has shown my family, so thank you for that. Um, as last week and also starting in week one, we're going to spend a little bit of time reading Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So Camber's going to come up and read for us today. Um, if you have not been here with us, this is a section of chapter one from Colossians that really defines the whole entire book for us. So each and every week, we've kind of read this together. You pull off, yeah. Um, we've read this together as a way to just kind of rehearse the truth of who Christ is. So Camber has graciously agreed to read for us today. So go ahead, Camber. Uh-oh. Is this thing on? There we go. Perfect. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thank you, Cameron. Um, this certainly is the high note of the whole entire book to uh, the church at Colossae. So if there's one thing that you would get, I hope it's those five verses, because that would be significant for us to kind of hold on to as we try to do life and follow Christ. So Colossians chapter 3 will be primarily verses 1 through 17 we'll pick apart uh, today. You know, one thing that happens when you become a parent is that you get a major upgrade in your senses. It's kind of like Spider-Man when he starts to realize that he can uh, hear things very well, his eyesight is better, he can sense problems around him, right? The spidey sense. There's a such thing called a parent sense, I think. Um, I know and I finally understand and know that my mom actually really did have eyes in the back of her head. I totally get it now. She could see things through her head. Uh, so I get it now. <laughs> but as a parent, your senses, they're kind of heightened, especially towards your particular children. Um, I can hear my children in a crowded room uh, much easier than I can hear a jet fly over my house at night. Uh, there's something about your attentiveness to their voices. Uh, during VBS, I was in another room talking to a parent, and I heard a child cry. It only took just a few moments of hearing this particular kid cry to know, that's my son. Sure enough, when I peeked in the room through the window of the class he was in, it was Everett. I, could just, I just knew. I just could hear it. My parent sense was going off. Um, a few weeks ago, another example, in the middle of the night, uh, Avery started to cry in her room. Now, I am a very, very, very sound sleeper. Uh, hardly anything wakes me up, uh, except for when I hear my kids. I instantaneously jumped out of the bed, and I rushed into Avery's room to find her in the middle of the room crying because she had had a bad dream. Um, 
So I picked her up. I held her in my arms. Uh, we talked for a few minutes. Uh, we discussed the small, hairy man that was after her. <laughs> that's terrifying. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's scary, Avery. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't go back to sleep. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we discussed the small, hairy man for a few moments, and we talked. Uh, but how absurd would it be to have this attentiveness to my children, to hear them, and to know there's a moment of distress and say, ah, I'm tired. I'd rather just lay here. If I were to be honest, it does cross my mind every time. <laughs> a cry is kind of a sign of distress. Well, sometimes it's a sign of distress. But in the middle of the night, it kind of signifies that something's wrong. I mean, to hear and understand that my daughter is in trouble and not respond is, is a bit absurd. I think that's where we're at this morning. To hear and to hopefully with our time understand that Christ is fully God and any deviation from that leads to trouble and not respond, I think is a bit absurd. You see, we stand at a mountaintop with further elevation ahead to the beautiful summit where Christ reigns supreme, where the God-man has paid the price for our sin. We heard the hymn of Paul. We heard it once again that told us Christ is fully God. But yet, there's another way down into the ravines of human wisdom. Wisdom that is ultimately insufficient in dealing with our sin, in dealing with our hopeless estate. The last two weeks, we have heard and we have seen that Christ is fully God. And any deviation from that has massive consequences. For the Colossians, it led to adopting practices that were heretical. And the most devastating consequence is that all of it was of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. As hard as they worked, as intelligent as these things may have sounded, as logical as those statements may have been perceived, they still did not stop the indulgence of the flesh. We stand here, the summit of Christ fully God in reach, and yet the ravines of human wisdom still there. Where do we go? What do we do now? Well, Paul knows the way ahead, and he gives us Christ again as the way forward, as the way to put to death sin and put on godly behavior, to put on fullness. Christ is our ethic. He is our way of life. It's only natural to move towards this thinking. I mean, honestly, how can one person rub elbows with the God-man and not be changed? And not be encouraged and not have a sense to know what's appropriate and inappropriate? Where do we go from here? Well, Paul shifts a little bit from chapter 2 and gets very, very practical for us this morning. Last week might have been a bit difficult to digest mentally. Well, today that won't be as difficult, but might be a bit hard to stomach in our heart today. And honestly, that's okay. 
because we are going to be well grounded as we do a bit of that search through our hearts. So what I'd like to do uh, is read chapter 3, verses 1, 1 through 17, to see the whole entire thing, and then we'll just start to pick that apart a little bit. So follow along with me if you have a Bible. If not, I believe the scriptures are on the screen. If then, Paul starts, coming off of chapter 2, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And if you don't know what is earthly in you, well, here's a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Here's a tough one, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which bonds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul begins this section by answering how we rid ourselves of indulging the flesh, which was lacking in chapter 2. By giving yet another thoughtful understanding about who Christ is and what that kind of means to us specifically. We touched on this last week, but he states that we have this unique relationship with Christ. That is accomplished, we learn, through what? The shed blood of the cross. So we enjoy a relationship that's unique. This is oftentimes referred to as our union with Christ. It's a term we oftentimes use to describe this unique relationship that we have. It's just simply a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers and Christ. We have several different benefits that we enjoy with Christ. We receive every benefit of salvation through this union with Christ. So one of those benefits Paul describes in this particular section. He uses kind of a contrasting language between raised and dead. Huh? I think we raised, 
How can you be dead? Does it make any sense? Well, we'll get there. To highlight kind of the comprehensive work of Christ in the life of a believer. So what does Paul say? Paul says that we have been raised with Christ. So we are raised with him. So we are uniquely in Christ in such a way that we enjoy being made alive through his resurrection. Now, this has been a common theme throughout this book. Chapter 1, verse 18, firstborn from the dead. Last week in chapter 2, verse 13, God made them alive, the Colossians, together with who? How do you make them alive? With Christ. See, we enjoy a unique relationship with Christ in such a way that we are made alive through his resurrection. We have been raised with him. So to Paul, in light of that union that we have with Christ, the next thing is to seek and set their minds above. Now think about this for a moment. Both of these exhortations, or sometimes we call imperatives, commands, strong encouragements, they are continual. And notice their focus is on what? Things above. Notice where we are to seek and set our minds on things above. The only proper place for the Christian, the church, is to look up. The only proper place for us to put action is to look up. Paul exhorts them, strongly encourages them to keep seeking the things above. Action. Seek. Put energy behind the position you have in Christ. You were made alive to seek the things above. Not to selfishly indulge, but you were made alive to, to seek the things above. Your sin was overcome to free you to embark on an all-consuming pursuit of God. Your freedom, your sin has been overcome so that you're free to embark on an all-consuming pursuit of God. Not a pursuit of yourself, a pursuit of God. Not only keep seeking, but what? Keep setting your minds on things above. Think, form an opinion, look towards Christ to formulate your opinion about, as we've learned, all things. Christ answers everything. There has not been an area of our life, as we'll see so clearly today, that Christ does not penetrate. That Christ does not give us insight about that part of our life. You see, this is interesting. You've been raised with Christ, so seek and set your minds. Well, guess what? You can do those things because you have died. All right. We enjoy yet another benefit we talked about raised. Well, this is interesting. We enjoy yet another benefit from our union with Christ, which is that we also have died to our old self. See, a work has been done to kill a part of us that needed to be killed before we could pursue the things above. What does that particular mean? Well, 
The past redemption, the past work of Christ in the life of the church at Colossae has led to presently their life is hidden with Christ and God. So notice, the past work of Christ has now led to presently their life is hidden with Christ in God. This is interesting. We are uniquely in Christ in such a way that our life is hidden. So deeply connected, we are His. Not only do we presently enjoy this union with Christ, so our life is so hidden in Him, but there's also the future promise of appearing with Him in glory. So comprehensive is the work of God. It affects us now and forevermore. So comprehensive is the work of God in the life of a believer that we've been redeemed, that presently affects us. We have future promise. That's good. We are so united with Christ in such a way that we will be with him for eternity. This is no mere thought for Paul. This is the groundwork of all the benefits of salvation that we enjoy, because we are in union with Christ. In such a unique way, we enjoy all the benefits of salvation. What does seek and set our minds on thinking above, what does that look like? Right? Because some of us are maybe, well, I want more concrete stuff. That's all good theoretically, but what, what does it look like for my everyday life? Well, Paul, being one of the greatest teachers and preachers we've ever known, doesn't leave us hanging. Really, verses 5 through 17 give us a bit of concrete things to consider. It kind of comes in the form of three, another exhortations, commands, strong encouragements, not just mere thoughts, put to death. He says put away, and then he says put on. Well, put to death is what he starts for. All three of these strong encouragements have a sense of urgency. It's almost like right now. Not like, hey, this afternoon, when you get a few moments, you're not doing anything. Then think about it. It's almost as if you read this word, do it now. There is an urgency behind these commands, behind these strong encouragement to make it our top priority, to identify things, attitudes, actions, and the like that need to be put to death. You see, it would only most naturally be done by putting them to death in Christ. If we are dead in Christ, and since our life is hidden with him, well, our sins are as well. They can die fully in the death of Christ on the cross. You are equipped with the work of Christ to put these things to death. They can die a full death in the death of Christ. I mean, this is really radical. It really contrasts chapter 2, right, where they have begun to rely on human means to rid themselves of sin and vices. Matter of fact, chapter 2 ends with this thought. They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, what do we do now, Paul? <laughs> what do I do now? You're telling me that I can't work hard enough? I can't put enough rituals and thoughts and activity to, to right myself? Yep. 
And then we have the beauty of chapter 3. Paul unlocks the great truth that we kill the flesh in the death of Christ. By no other means can you do this work. You cannot slay the giant of sin, but God can in the God-man. Well, what are some of these things? Let's get to this beautiful list for a few moments and just let it do a little bit of a work in our heart this morning. What are these things that we need to put to death? Now, Paul is talking to the church there. Obviously, as we'll see, very relevant to us. But understand, it's not an exhaustive list. Oh, just these things and I'm good. No. (laughs) The gospel of the work of Christ penetrates a lot of our life. But here's a few things to consider, and they seem to be somewhat of internal vices. See, Paul very commonly had these lists called a vice, virtue list, and they kind of show up in the same text to kind of contrast. This, not good. This, good. So what are some of these vices? And interestingly enough, the four first ones are typically associated with sexual sin. Sexual sin is not new. Sexual sin will probably plague us until Christ returns. These first four kind of show us various ways we see sexual transgression. Well, number one, sexual immorality. That's plain enough, right? Not sure if Paul had an order in mind, but I think he might have. I find it interesting he starts with sexual immorality. If there was ever a time of great confusion about our sexuality and proper practice, it's now. If there ever was a moment in history, we needed to be clear of what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, it's now. You see, sexual misconduct, misuse, abuse, or overindulgence, it needs and must be put to death. The urgency for the church to be open and honest about its view and remaining faithful to that view, that's fairly key. Being open and honest, remaining faithful to that view is huge, and it's needed. It's desperately needed. As we said during our Proverbs series, as I was studying through this, I was recalling a lot of our Proverbs series. We, we, I believe Pastor Chuck made this statement. It is impossible to live a wise life in 2016 without carefully formed convictions and habits of sex and sexuality impossible, impossible to enjoy all the benefits of salvation, of union with Christ, and to be an adequate witness to the world around us. Impossible if we do not have carefully formed convictions and habits of sex and sexuality. Praise God that through Christ, we can put it to death. We have an adequate answer to deal with with this ailment that is prevalent. Praise God that we can put it to death in the death of Christ. No other way that we can put this to death. And then pick up healthy perspectives. Secondly, impurity. Now, this is a more kind of generic term, but it has the tone of kind of uncleanliness. It still carries an air of sexual uncleanliness. See, with these first few vices, I cannot help but think of Jesus' perspective about sexual sin. 
in Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 28, I'm just going to read this to you. Let's just, let's just land. These are the words of Christ, the God-man. You've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Come on. Well, Jesus here, he kind of redefined adultery. And he's kind of expressing, not kind of, he is expressing the dangers of lustful intent. The dangers of long, lustful looks at a coworker. The dangers of just a few moments on the internet. I'm not hurting anyone. The average age for a young man to see their first pornographic materials around age 12. Average age, I think, for a young woman is somewhere around the age of 13. Crazy. The availability of sexual explicit material is at an all-time high. The ease to which an individual can engage in, in impurity, uncleanliness, and feed the lustful desires is great. Brothers and sisters, we can put it to death in the death of Christ and be raised anew to cleanliness sexually. This is a major concern. This is something the church has an adequate answer. Well, thirdly, he says passion. This has a sense of lustful desires. Notice how Paul is penetrating even deeper into the heart. He's kind of going just a tad bit further, moving from the action, moving into the heart, digging deep to uproot the source from which the display of sexual misconduct comes. Notice that, tra- that, that progression. Oh, here's the act. But let's go a little bit further. Let's just get down to lustful desires. You know, one of the clearest examples of how necessary it is to dig up the source from which trouble comes is trying to get rid of a weed. My gosh, is that terrible. In our house that we lived in in Chandler, there was a weed I got introduced to called nutsegs. I think, is that the right name? I think so. Yeah, nutsegs. This thing is terrible. It has to be from the pits of hell because it is crazy. So I go out because, you know, I'm going to keep a nice yard. We go to the all out in the rocks. It's all this stuff. So I start to pull them out, understanding, hey, I should be sure to get the roots. So I'm like, I'm wiggling, you know, just going real gentle with them. Pull them out. And seemingly to me, it looks like it has roots. I'm like, yes, I accomplished it. It's, it's not going to grow back. Literally, days later, a whole bunch of it. Oh, what's going on here? I go through the process again. Let me wet the area. That'll loosen up the concrete that's called dirt here. So I, I move the rocks around now, right? I'm going to get closer to it, get closer to the ground. And I just wiggle, and oh, I got more roots this time. It's all good. Weeks later, a whole bunch of it again, mocking me and laughing at me every time I walk out to the yard. What in the world? Well, I discovered that this particular weed has a, a little bit of a, a bulb, I guess, or some type of nut that falls way into the ground. That's actually the source. To rid your yard of this particular weed, you got to dig. You got to dig a lot. So 
So I embarked upon this journey of getting rid of nutsegs. I had to borrow from my neighbor like this little shifter thing. I'm like digging up rocks and I think the whole family's out there. We're like shaking it back and went, sure enough, we found all these little bulbs, which is a source. Once we did the hard work of digging, the source at, well, it started to have an impact. Yeah, and popped up other places. But as we begin to rid the yard of the source, that's when we notice results. See, Christ is not in the business of just correcting your behavior. He's actually in the business of changing your character, changing your heart. And the natural flow is that actions change. He moves in even deeper, evil desires. Not that desire is evil in and of itself, but it can be driven by evil intent. See, this desire is characterized by the term evil. A tricky and deceptive way that sins entice us, right, and pulls us away. Once again, digging deep to kill the source of sin. Lastly, in this particular list, he says covetousness. But he doesn't just end with covetousness. He says, which is idolatry? And the wrath of God will be poured out. Here's an interesting definition for covetousness. The state of desiring to have more than one's due. I really chuckled when I read that. The state of desiring to have more than what one's due. A perfect definition of our culture at times. This particular vice is actually giving a pretty stark indictment, isn't it? It's called idolatry. And as a result, the justified wrath of God will be poured out. Perhaps the extra description here, and when if you look at this, the way it's even constructed, it kind of pulls this one out of the list a little bit, gives it further definitions. And I think, because Paul possibly has reached the bottom, he's reached the source of many of our ills and places the ending result of letting this attitude and control our behavior, placing it underneath a stark indictment. For this to be our philosophy about life, the ending result is, well, idolatry, and the wrath of God will be poured out. Perhaps Paul is trying to say the whole entire list, as it progressively moves down, understand the result of living that way. And then in verse, our verse 7 he reminds us, in these you once walked when you were living in them. He doesn't really let them off the hook through this massive list and says, hey, and you once, you lived and you walked that way. Never forget the bleakness of your former situation. You lived and breathed these very things. You were held as a slave in a prison where sin reigned supreme. You were in union with sin, not Christ. It had control, and the spell had to be broken. I love how Paul says, never forget the bleakness of your former situation. Perhaps that would cause us to be far more grateful Interestingly enough, we'll see in a few moments. And then verse 8, we get another exhortation, another imperative to maybe signify a bit of a shift here. You got this one list, you're like, okay, Paul, that's enough. We just, let's just move into another list. And he says, put away, take off. 
It is with the next list and the verses that Paul begins to discuss kind of our relationships, I think, kind of relational sins, sins of the mouth, sometimes people say, amongst the church and amongst believers. See, Paul uses vivid imagery all the way through of what? Of putting to death, taking off, putting on, like an old worn out garment. Put it away. Get rid of it. It's time. Well, this list starts with anger. And I think Paul is perhaps focused on the emotional aspect of anger. That eventually leads to the next thing, which is wrath. A good, adequate definition of wrath is intense anger with inappropriate outbursts. That seems to typically begin with anger. Unchecked anger that boils over into an inappropriate outburst, whether verbal or physical. And then he says malice, feeling of hostility and strong dislike, hmm. with a possible implication of desiring to do harm. So enraged, such hostility, such strong dislike with the implication that you're going to do harm, which interestingly enough, our next one, it's a very harmful action. Slander. We don't use that term very often, but it's speech that defames someone. Speaking to cause harm. Out of hostility, strong dislike oftentimes finds its way into slander, into harmful speech to ruin another individual. Notice again the movement from inside to action. Anger. To wrath, malice to slander, hostility, strong dislike, then slandering that person with damaging speech. Notice the progression. All these actions move from the heart to the action. Paul is so strongly clear of how sin works. And this is exactly why our hearts need to be changed. Behavioral modification will not win the day. But a changed heart will. Paul constantly is reminding us the progression of sin. Lastly, in this particular list is obscene, or we could say abusive talk from your mouth. See, our mouths can be a wrecking ball if you're not careful. James put it this way. He says, how great a force to set ablaze such a small fire. How great a forest, how many acres of land are destroyed by one small spark? But as powerful as it can be to destroy, well, guess what? It can also build up. Throughout our Proverbs series, we looked at this text. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, health to the body. Brothers and sisters, what you say has massive impact. What you say behind closed doors with those whom you say you love most has impact. All these things kind of remind me once again of Christ's teaching in Matthew 5. Listen to these verses. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. We all can get behind that. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, 
Christ kind of redefines here. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. <laughs> okay, I get not murdering. But you see what he's doing. He's running to the heart because that's the spring from which all the bad action comes. All that Paul has laid out is exactly what Christ, the God-man, laid out in his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. This is no new news. Christ has said it. In verse 9, we have our first prohibition, what not to do. Sometimes could be seen as general, but maybe it has somewhat of an air of stop doing this. What does it say? Do not lie. And if anyone has any kickback, why should I lie? Isn't that okay? Paul says, because you have put off <laughs> this imagery again. You put off the old self with its practices. See the connection? The old self had practices. It had a natural occurrence that would happen in your life. So you put the old self. Notice again, the practice of lying was within the nature of the old self. Something has to happen to rid ourselves. Our actions are a result of our heart. I can't say that enough this morning. Once again, we see this language of putting off and putting on. Again, the same words. But yet, here's what's really neat about this. It's applied directly to lying. See, a more precise look at what Paul has been saying. Put off the old man. That was ruled, inevitably would be ruled by sin. And put on the new man who's ruled by Christ. And so, if that, oh, what does that mean? Well, Paul is completely clear. He says, stop lying. If you want a clear depiction of what I mean, putting off, putting on, well, here's a very clear one. Stop lying. Be truth tellers. Be truth tellers. And then we find our way to verse 10 and 11. Put off the new self, or put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image its creator. In verse 11, this is, this is so relevant to us today. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So comprehensive is the death we die in Christ and the life we now live that divisions based on ethnicity cease to exist. So comprehensive is the death we die in Christ and the life we now live that the divisions based on ethnicity Cease to exist. The new community that exists with and in Christ is unity. This is the deep failure of the previous chapter. It can never be accomplished by simply trying harder. Taking off the old self, putting on the new, having the image of God restored is the only means for anger, hate, malice, slander, abusive talk to be done away with. Well, there's all of our negatives. What do we put on? Paul stresses the urgency, make this top priority. Put on compassion and hearts, compassionate affection. Our first response to tragic killing should be compassion. Our response to sinful man who's outside of the shed blood of Christ should 
be compassion. When the next news story is a tragic display of senseless killings, brothers and sisters, compassion should be our first response. For it guards against anger. And if you're still awake, you remember, we just mentioned that a few verses ago. We put on compassion hearts that guard against anger, wrath, slander, ill-advised Facebook posts, Twitters. It guards against that. This is the practice of the God-men, right? Remember in Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. His first response is compassion. Out of compassion comes kindness, the quality of being helpful or beneficial. What if that was our mindset most days? The quality of being helpful or beneficial. How would that change our actions? Next, humility. Here, it means without arrogance. One's actions are not used to be noticed or praised, but rather out of gratitude. It's the same word used to say asceticism in chapter 2, because they were using the activity to be noticed, to be puffed up. Well, this means without arrogance. An individual who has a humble mindset, a humble attitude. He doesn't live his life to make much of himself, but to make much of the individual who caused the humility to occur. Meekness, unfortunately, meekness rhymes with weakness because they have nothing to do with each other. This is a quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. See, strength under control. It's not that you become weak, but you actually become under control in the death of Christ and raised anew with him. No need to make much of you or your abilities, but rather exhibit the next one that says patience. See, when you're not there to just toot your own horn, you remain calm keeping your temper down, awaiting the outcome of any given situation. And probably the most difficult, right, bearing with one another, has a sense of continually bear, put up with each other. And this is reciprocal, by the way. It, it needs to go back and forth. <laughs> if I'm going to bear with you, you got to bear with me. Because there's a lot to bear with here. See, a common characteristic of a believer is long suffering with other brothers and sisters. This should mark us as a Christian community. This should mark us as Church on Mill. Forgiving, notice the standard by which we are called to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. How could you miss it? How do you think there's moments I forgive and other moments I, I don't forgive? If we are to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us, well, that is massive and multiple times we should be marked by a sense of forgiveness. And lastly, loving. Above all else, love. It's the fastener that binds all things together, especially them as a Christian community, the church. You see, there will be frustration. There will be disagreements. There will be tension. There will be a class of views of what's prudent. But these never supersede love. How delightful the Christian community should be. <laughs> How delightful you and I 
should model the effects of the gospel in our life. Paul moves from this list and says, you need to put a, let the peace of Christ rule, be thankful, and let the words of Christ dwell in you. So what's interesting about these next three things, they're also commands. They're also exhortations to mean continually do this. And, and perhaps, I think these next things, according to Paul, would ensure an ongoing display of these virtues. I think that's what he's getting at here. Kind of like skin that holds the organs in place to continually do their job. These things we wrap ourselves in to keep putting on godliness. To allow this putting off and putting on to continue. Let the peace of Christ rule in you, not the self-pride of keeping rituals, but resting in his work on the cross. Be thankful has an air of become thankful. Continually become thankful. Let gratitude for the work of God through Christ work its way out in thankfulness. Hard to be grumpy when your generally outlook is thankfulness. Being thankful is a playground for the process of putting off and then putting on to occur. Being thankful is the air that we breathe to let this putting on and putting off continue to work. It's the environment that allows sins to be dealt with, to allows it to be put to death and godliness to be put on. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which does what? Teach and admonish in the right wisdom by means of singing songs, hymns, spiritual songs. See, there's a real sense that corporate gathering is a place where the word of Christ dwells in us. You see, Christ's words are not cool, nifty statements, but rather a God for our life. Well, what do we do now? Where do we head after this? Well, church, the best question I can ask you is, what list best describes you? I mean, honestly, if you'll do the hard work of digging... You'll do the hard work of letting the gospel, letting the work of Christ start to work in your heart, which list best describes you. If I were to ask those close to you, what would they say? Your kids, your spouse, your best friend, parent, co-workers. If everyone in the church acted like you, how would the church be described in our community? That's a sobering thought for me. I don't know what it does for you. But if everyone acted like me, that'd be a bad day. But it causes me to reflect, well, why is that? Which list best describes you? The church should and must show compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, the ability to bear with one another, forgiving and loving. The church must display that sexual immorality, all sexual sin, anger, wrath, malice, slander, covetousness can be dealt with and overcome. Secondly, if you're visiting with us today, and this message sounds absurd, and Christ is not a big deal, or doesn't mean much, let me say something, and let me make something abundantly clear. Paul only goes to all the trouble of discussing vices and virtues because of one fact. Christ 
has first worked. Now you can work and change their hearts. Something has to happen to overcome their deadness, as Paul describes here. He's not just giving a list of behavioral modifications. He's not just calling us to just pull up our boots tighter and work harder. No, what he's calling us to is that Christ has overcome your deadness and made you alive in the work on the Christ. It is Christ that moves us from dead to alive, that moves us from the kingdom of this world with its philosophies to the kingdom of God where we experience freedom and wholeness. Christ moves us from our complete slavery to sin to victors who can put to death its hold on them. As hard as the world tries to account for this side of things, for sin, evil, bad things, the betterment of ourselves, it can never give us an adequate answer as God has through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He is not in the business of behavioral modification. He is in the business of correcting your heart. You see, Christ begins the section and ends the section, indicating that everything in between is only accomplished through Christ. There is nothing more defeating than trying and trying and trying and trying and it not working. But there's something wonderful about surrendering to Christ and feeling freedom like never before. Let's pray. Father God, grateful for our time together, grateful for uh, Paul's instructions in Colossians chapter 3. But what I am most grateful for and what I most love is that you have done the work on the cross so that I could put to death the old self and walk anew in you. May you take these scriptures, may you continually stir our hearts, and may we be about the tough business of digging and digging and digging, of only to put to death in your sacrifice ourselves. So thank you, and it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.